0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Critique Journal Club for November 2012. I'm Neil Orford and let's go through the literature that caught our eye this month. Quite a bit of medical and surgical literature touched on ICU this month, so let's start with that. In JAMA, there were two articles on the role of renin-angiotensin system antagonists and outcomes in heart failure. The first, by London colleagues, looks at renin-angiotensin system antagonists in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, where there is less evidence than in the group with reduced ejection fraction heart failure. This study looked at over 160,000 patients on the Swedish Heart Failure Registry with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction and reported the use of renin-angiotensin antagonists was associated with a significant decrease in mortality. This persisted after adjustments for confounders and propensity matching, particularly age and renal function. The overall one-year mortality was in the order of 20 to 25%, in itself a sobering statistic for this cohort. Although large, it is retrospective and it is possible the reasons for prescription of ARBs may have varied and a healthy user effect remained. In addition, the benefits of ARBs decreased as EF increased, so the mortality benefit disappeared in the group with an EF greater than 50% compared to the group with an EF of 40 to 49%. So overall this is not conclusive and it is possible the benefit is due to confounding and that only the group with EF of 40-49% to 49% and normal renal function benefit from ARBs. Still, it's an interesting area and will lead to further research in patients with preserved ejection fraction and heart failure. The second study in the same edition of JAMA by Hernandez and colleagues is an observational trial that examined translational research of the clear evidence of benefit from aldosterone antagonists in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction into safety and efficacy in clinical practice. The authors were particularly interested in older, sicker, minority group patients, those who don't get into RCTs. A data registry of 5,887 patients hospitalised with Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction were compared by those who received allosterone antagonists versus those that did not. They report that the groups were different at baseline with the treated group younger, with less renal impairment and lower ejection fractions. They were more likely to receive digoxin and diuretics, had less ischemic heart disease and had more evidence-based treatment. Now the results were described overall and then after adjustment for these confounders and propensity matching. So there was no difference in adjusted mortality or cardiovascular readmissions. There was a decrease in heart failure readmission in the treatment group, and there was an increase in readmission for arrhythmia management in the treated group. There was also an increase in hyperkalemia readmission at 30 days and one year in the treatment group. So although the RCT evidence for benefit of aldosterone antagonists in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is clear, the benefits appeared to diminish or disappear in the real world due to the lack of rigor in selection, presumably, and adherence to protocols. So that's an interesting study. A study on ultrafiltration and decompensated heart failure with cardiorenal syndrome was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. They randomised patients with acute decompensated heart failure and worsened renal function and persistent congestion to a strategy of stepped pharmacological therapy in 94 patients or ultrafiltration in 94 patients. The primary outcome was change in creatinine and weight at 96 hours and stepped pharmacological therapy was superior. In addition, there are more adverse events with ultrafiltration So the rationale for the study was that ultrafiltration may give better control and less neurohumeral activation in cotorenal syndrome, with current guidelines stating it is a reasonable approach in patients not responding to medical therapy. And this study doesn't support that earlier use of ultrafiltration, which may be a relief to many intensivists. The last medical study that we look at is a study that looked at patients' expectations about the effects of chemotherapy for advanced cancer. So this prospective observational cohort study examined the expectations of 1,193 patients with newly diagnosed metastatic lung or colorectal cancer four months after they were diagnosed and had had chemotherapy. 69% of those with lung cancer and 81% of those with colorectal cancer did not know that they were unlikely to be cured. And over 40% of lung cancer and 60% of colorectal cancer patients thought they were somewhat or very likely to be cured. The physician interviews were not taped and it is possible patients would choose to have ongoing palliative therapy anyway. Even so, the issues of informed consent, that is, have the requirements been met when the individual's understanding is so poor, and expectations of illness, progression are so disparate to reality, is very concerning. Let's move on to the surgical outcome studies that touched ICU. Firstly, a post-operative bioprosthetic aortic valve study published in JAMA, examined the outcomes in patients with tissue AVR and warfarin therapy, excluding those receiving warfarin prior to surgery, in 4,075 patients. There was a median follow-up of 6.5 years. Of these, 187 received aspirin only, 2,278 warfarin only, 916 warfarin and aspirin, and 700 neither. 3,094 of those receiving warfarin had it discontinued. They measured incident rate ratios of strokes, thromboembolic events, cardiovascular deaths and bleeding incidents for these groups, and for those discontinuing warfarin versus not discontinuing. The limitation of not having data about time in therapeutic range with associated risks and benefits was recognised by the authors. They report that for every 23 patients not treated with warfarin, one died from a cardiovascular cause. For every 74 patients treated with warfarin, one required hospitalisation for bleeding complications. And they conclude that discontinuation of warfarin treatment within six months of bioprosthetic aortic valve is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular death. In the New England Journal of Medicine, A long-term comparison of endovascular and open repair of abdominal aortic aneurysm was published by the OVA Veterans Affairs Cooperative Study Group. They randomised 881 patients with asymptomatic abdominal aneurysms to either endovascular or open repair and followed them up for nine years. They report that there was no difference in the primary outcome of all-cause mortality, as reported in previous trials in this area, there was a reduction in perioperative mortality with the endovascular group, and that was sustained for up to three years, but then disappeared. There was a significant interaction observed between age and treatment, so in those who were less than 70 years of age, there was benefit with endovascular repair, and over 70 years with open, and that's a bit surprising, as you might have expected the opposite. Aneurysm rupture following repair was uncommon, but all of them occurred in the endovascular group, that's 6 versus 0, producing a significant difference. So overall, long-term survival is the same, although endovascular have better early outcomes with an increase in late deaths, and is better in younger patients. So not quite equivalent, but similar. Another trial in the New England Journal of Medicine from the Freedom Trial Investigators looked at strategies for multi-vessel revascularization in patients with diabetes. This prospective RCT compared aggressive medical therapy with PCI to aggressive medical therapy and CAGS in 1,900 patients with diabetes and multi-vessel coronary disease, which was greater than 70% stenosis of two or more major epicardial vessels, excluding left main. The primary outcome, which was a composite of death from any cause, non-fatal MI and non-fatal stroke, occurred more frequently in the PCI group, with five-year rates of 26.6% compared to 18.7% in the CAG group, and this was due to an increase in AMI and death from any cause. Stroke was more common in the CAG group. So, in diabetics with multivessel disease, CAGS results in decreased AMI and death, but more stroke at five years. Also, in cardiac surgery, a randomized controlled trial of intraoperative high dose dexamethasone for cardiac surgery was published in JAMA by the DEX study group. In this 4,494 patient multicenter RCT, a single dose of 1 milligram per kilogram of intraoperative DEX during cardiac surgery did not reduce 30-day incidence of major outcomes, death, MI, stroke, renal or respiratory failure. Respiratory failure overall was the same, but in the DEX group, weaning time from mechanical ventilation and ICU length of stay was significantly shorter, despite similar median times due to an increase in prolonged ventilation in the placebo group. The risk of post-operative infection was lower in the DEX group due to less pneumonia. And in the under 65-year-olds, dex was associated with a lower likelihood of the primary outcome. So the investigators proposed a follow-up study to investigate this relationship of dexamethasone and benefit due to respiratory complications. Moving into the more direct intensive care literature, let's look at a hyperoxia study by David Jansen and colleagues published in Critical Care Medicine. The role of hyperoxia in neurological outcomes following cardiac arrest is being examined by a number of groups. This retrospective cohort analysis studied the relationship between PO2 and outcomes in 173 comatose patients treated with mild therapeutic hypothermia following cardiac arrest. Not surprisingly, survivors who younger had VFET as their initial rhythm, shorter return of spontaneous circulation time. They also had a lower median PaO2 and maximum PaO2. So higher PaO2s were associated with worse neurological outcome. So the levels of PaO2 reported in this study were higher than in a large multi-centre observational Australia and New Zealand study that was recently published. Um, Overall, this is hypothesis generation, and maybe hyperoxia is harmful with proposed mechanisms including oxidation of neuronal lipid membranes and vasoconstriction caused by hypoxia, You can see that there's going to be a prospective RCT type study in this area soon. Selective decontamination of the digestive tract turned up again last month with a review by Silvestri and colleagues in intensive care medicine. Now selective decontamination of the digestive tract, SDD, is an antimicrobial prophylaxis using parenteral and enteral antibiotics. The theory is that critical illness causes overgrowth of normal and abnormal flora in the digestive tract during critical illness, leading to pneumonia, bacteremia and increased mortality, and the idea is that SDD counteracts this. The authors of this paper have an impressive track record of reviewing this subject, In 1996, 2003, and again now, with 65 RCTs and 11 meta-analyses involving 15,000 patients over 25 years, in this highly contentious yet apparently unresolved area, what does this review offer? Well, it provides a comprehensive description of how gut overgrowth occurs, the organisms involved, the potential harm, and the methods to control overgrowth. They describe the rationale for the SDD mix of agent, the SDD limitations at controlling exogenous infections, i.e. MRSA, and the idea of adding topical antimicrobials to prevent this, the evidence in favour of SDD to control bacteria overgrowth and reduce gram-negative infections and critical illness and the evidence regarding STD and resistance, evidence to suggest a decrease in resistance with STD and a rationale for substituting gentamicin for tobramycin if ESBLs exist. They argue that the concerns over ecological catastrophe of exposing vast number of patients to broad-spectrum antibiotics aren't justified. The authors conclude by questioning whether our withholding of STD is ethically reasonable considering the evidence in its favour. Overall, a provocative and well-written study. In the paediatric ICU literature, there were a couple of articles we noticed. Firstly, a prospective observational study of vitamin D status in critically ill children by Constance Ripple and colleagues from Melbourne. The interest in vitamin D status and outcome in critical illness continues, with this prospective observational paediatric study reporting a high incidence of hypovitamin D-osis, 34.5% of patients, in critically ill children, compared to probably 8% in healthy Australian children of the same age. It's more common following cardiac surgery. It is associated with a lower ionised calcium and inotrope requirement, and there was no association with length of stay or mortality. So what we don't know is, is hypervitaminosis D simply a change in regulation in critical illness, or does it have a causative role in morbidity and mortality? Is it due to critical illness or chronic disease or both? And what is the cutoff for deficiency if it exists in critical illness? The other PICU trial was the Paediatric Acute Lung Injury Epidemiology and Natural History Study, published in Critical Care Medicine by the PED Alien Network. This prospective observational study, performed in 21 PICUs in Spain, describes the incidence, etiology and outcomes of ARDS-ALI in critically ill children. They report an incidence of 3.9 per 100,000 of population less than 15 years of age, and 1.4% of ICU admissions. So, 1 in 12 ventilated children met ARDS criteria. Pneumonia and sepsis were the most common causes. Mean tidal volume varied from 7.3 to 7.6 mL per kilo, and plateau pressure 21 to 27 cm of water, once the diagnosis of ARDS was made. They also report that 18 out of 146 patients received tidal volumes of greater than 10 mls per kilo, and they found an association between higher tidal volume and pneumothorax. Overall, hospital mortality for ARDS, ALI, was 27.4%, and this varied with severity. So in ALI, it was 11.8%, moderate ARDS, 20.7%, and severe ARDS, 38.5% and pre-existing illness did not correlate with mortality, but failing organs in ICU did. So a good epidemiological study in paediatric ICU. It wouldn't be a month in the critical care literature without the sweet taste of glucose. In critical care medicine, a study by Badawi and colleagues examined the association between intensive care unit-acquired dysglycemia and in-hospital mortality. The authors of this study argue that although nice sugar demonstrated harm or no benefit, the problem of maintaining glycemic control within the target range was difficult. This shortcoming leaves unanswered questions. That is, it remains unclear whether tight glucose control could improve outcomes if it could be achieved reliably while avoiding hyperglycemia. This large retrospective observational study of approximately 200,000 patients in over 340 ICUs examines the hypothesis that dysglycemia, that is variability of blood glucose, affects mortality. The risk of mortality progressively increased with severity and duration of deviation from new glycemia and with increased variability. This suggests that severe intensive care unit acquired hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia and variability are associated with similar risks of mortality. So they conclude that we need more research to examine whether a goal of wider glycemic target zones, buffer zones and reduced extremes is better. To finish the review of this month, there's a couple of interesting organisational resource type studies worth considering. The first, a trial of shift scheduling with standardised sign-out to improve continuity of care in intensive care units by Emlet and colleagues from Derrick Hangus's group, it was published in Critical Care Medicine. Now, this is interesting to anyone struggling with the issues of long shift versus loss of continuity from increased handovers. We know that fatigue clinicians are dangerous due mainly to attention failure and poor communication, or inadequate handoff or handover, depending where you live. However, night float or night shifts and other methods used to decrease hours may disrupt continuity. This prospective study, performed in a US 28 bed mixed medical surgical ICU, compared shift work with structured sign out, which was the intervention, to fourth night call for ICU fellows. So there were two intensivists during the day, one in-house at night, and the fellows were juniors who worked 65 hours a week. The control group did one-in-four call with a brief verbal handover using handwritten notes. The intervention group did 12-hour shifts and used standardised computer-assisted sign-out and had an educational curriculum with computerised prompts. They used forward cycling shifts with short strings of nights, which is evidence-based. So what did they find? There was no mean difference between the two schedules and satisfaction regarding continuity of care amongst the fellows, attendings and nurses. The ICU length of stay was significantly shorter in the intervention schedule. There was no difference in family satisfaction. And the final vote for intervention versus standards schedule favoured intervention amongst the attendings and the nurses but was split amongst the fellows. So what does all this mean? Well, compared to European and Australian standards, the weekly hours are still very long. The numbers are small, but suggest that shift work results in less fatigued doctors engaging better. The intervention group included a number of changes, that is, shift work, better handover and better education. So this study is by no means conclusive, but it is a controversial area and one worth discussing. Finally, a study on the value of routine versus on-demand chest X-ray was published. So this study from 104 French ICUs published in Intensive Care Medicine was a prospective multi-centre observational study comparing the clinical value of on-demand chest X-ray to daily routine chest X-ray in 1,225 patients in 104 French ICUs. Clinical value depended on whether the chest X-ray provided significant information, that is, diagnostic yield, or was associated with a change in care, therapeutic yield, which would not have otherwise occurred. They found that on-demand more frequently impacted patient care than daily routine, 44% versus 19%. And of interest, the lower PF ratio, the higher the value of the on demand and the lower the value of the daily routine. So, a good side point. The on demand approach reduced the regular morning chest x ray number and did not affect those that occurred outside of this time. That is, there was no disruption to radiology. So, based on this, the authors argue that the on demand approach is better than the daily routine approach. Well, that's it for the month. If you want to see more about these articles, come to the Critique Journal Club or look them up for yourselves online. See you next month.